Welcome. You're listening to Saw Longform, with me, your host, Danny Easton. Over the past month, I've had the pleasure to sit down with people whose work captivates, people who push boundaries in their fields, ask questions and innovate, people who run. These dialogues are the basis for a series of long-form discussions where we dig deeper into their brilliant work and the light that it casts on the sport that we love. Today's guest is an assistant professor in anthropology, a 220 marathoner and a GB athlete who spent 15 months in Ethiopia living and training alongside the country's most talented distance runners. His findings distilled into his incredible first book, Out of Thin Air. Ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to welcome Michael Crawley. To kick things off, I think it'd be quite good for people listening who might not necessarily know what anthropology is to kind of arrive on on a definition for it. Because there's a brilliant phrase in your book, which we'll, we'll come to, where you say that being an anthropologist is to try and be a good storyteller of other people's stories. And then you kind of include this other quote from another anthropologist called James Clifford, who describes it as deep hanging out, which I think is brilliant. Do you think that that's a fair estimation of what anthropology is for people who are listening? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Basically just, I suppose, long-term commitment to a particular place when you're doing field work. Um, And also just a, a commitment to sort of building proper relationships with people that are meaningful, um, you know, in a, in a way that is um, much more involved than handing out a survey or doing a questionnaire or something like that, you know, it's about um, building long-term relationships, even friendships with people that last a long time. Um, so I'm still in touch with a lot of the guys that I write about in the book. I lived with them, ran with them every day, you know, it's um, it really is about trying to sort of view the view the world from their perspective um some anthropologists refer to this as the kind of the life world trying to understand the life world of a, a particular group of people so um what does the world look like to someone um in Ethiopia who's trying to use running to change their lives for the better basically and that is is that what differentiates this this might be a stupid question but is that what differentiates it from sociology is the fact that you're dialing down deep into the individual's perspective and their outlook rather than the kind of the the macro the, the kind of wide view of 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 a group of individuals yeah i guess so i mean there's there's quite a lot of overlap i suppose between anthropology and sociology especially cuz um sociologists have started to use anthropological sort of methods um a lot more but sociologists do tend to try and put things in a in a sort of bigger um political economy sort of perspective i suppose uh but ethnography is you know the main kind of research method of um of kind of participant observation so being around people and watching how they they act and spending long time long periods of time alongside people that's something that sociologists also also do um just i suppose there's a bit of a a, ba- a battle over who over ownership of that as a research method but uh is there is there rivalry between the uh anthropologists and sociologists or, or do you all is there acknowledgement that you're all kind of on the same team uh i guess that um i suppose it probably depends who you ask but uh, <laughs> i think some of the some of the best um ethnographic work on sport has been done by people who describe themselves as sociologists so it's a really great book about um boxing called Body and Soul by a, a French um, sociologist called Louis Quacon. And he he spent a long time 
um, boxing in a gym in Chicago to write that book and, and things. So um, there are sociologists who've done real proper ethnography as well. With anthropology, just sort of zeroing in on that, because I, I don't know whether sometimes like when I think of anthropology, or when people perhaps think of anthropology, it maybe has slightly, it has a bit of a, it used to have a bit of a bad reputation. Do you think that's a fair, fair thing? There's kind of colonialist kind of connotations of, of Westerners going over and to, you know, interacting with the uncivilized locals. Do you think that's still a slight stereotype or do you think people like yourselves or sort of more kind of 21st century anthropologists are trying to change the the narrative on what people perceive anthropology to be? Um, hopefully it's shifting. I think there's still um, still problems in terms of the kind of power dynamics that are at play there. But I think sort of if you look back to um, sort of early anthropological engagement with, with some parts of the world, it was very much um, implicated in the kind of colonial project. So often anthropologists were sort of attached to colonial administrations or sort of working on their behalf in some way to kind of understand what, you know, local people and, and things. Um, obviously, there's not that kind of um, entrenched connection anymore. But um, whilst I suppose anthropologists try not to have this kind of purely extractive relationship with the people that they work with, where they're just kind of um, taking information um, and, you know, the, the local people don't benefit at all. There is still, you know, if you think about my book, for example, it's uh, it's me who gets the who appears on podcasts talking about it. Me who I'm I'm kind of subject to the reviews of the book, and um, even though there were you know a lot of the people that I lived with were very instrumental in making it happen, um, there's still still kind of problems there. I think. Yeah, it's just it's really really interesting in terms of in terms of your work as an anthropologist. Well, well, definitely come to the book but in terms of of this year like 2020 surely that's going to be a bumper year for for anthropologists and, and sociologists uh, do, do you think there's going to be do you think you'll be writing another book about various things that you may have observed over the past year i mean it's been a it's it's sort of been an impossible year to do proper anthropology i suppose this year suppose, because, yeah you can't get close yeah. um there's been every you can use digital methods to a certain degree i've tried i've done interviews with ethiopian runners about covid and how they're coping with it using kind of whatsapp and i've had i've been involved in in some kind of groups for ethiopian like training group chats basically on on whatsapp to try to get a sense of how people are coping with it um and i will probably do something with that material but it's not the same as actually being able to go and sit down with someone and and chat to them about about things and spend a decent amount of time um, with them. So it's, you know, anthropologists and sociologists have been involved in trying to respond to COVID in various different ways, including kind of trying to work out how uh, how to ensure that the, the testing programs actually work and that people understand them and, and things like that. But it's, it's not the easiest time to actually do proper ethnography, I suppose. Oh, so that's interesting. So people within the profession of anthropologists and sociologists have been engaged in making sure there is understanding of of what of 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 like government message or like things to do about vaccine or inter interacting with with the public in terms of getting out clear messaging. Are, are people within your profession sort of involved in that process? Yeah, they are. Yeah, um, I think that there was kind of funding available for um, for social scientists, including anthropologists, to kind of put. Put together proposals for work of that kind and i think it's you know it is important to think about um 
the kind of the social aspects of, of this as much as anything else, including, you know, if you think about the vaccine distribution, for example, is BAME uptake of the vaccine is very low compared with um, other parts of the population. It's important to ask why that is. And that's not just purely, a, a well, to do with uh, kind of histories of the ways in which like doctors have interacted with people from various different backgrounds and things like that. So it, it takes, um, it does take social scientists to try to understand what's going on there, I think. It's fascinating. And in terms of when you are tasked with with a project, say, for example, that or or with your book, what is what's the beginning of your process? What what does it what does it look like? Because it's sort of it's participation and observation feel like the two kind of kind of halves that like in terms of your process, how do you how, how do you begin when you're tackling a project? Well, let's talk about the running project, I guess, to, to sort of put it um, into to, context. Yeah, I think um, so. There's, there's a really good distinction, I think, that um, Loic Lacan, the French um, sociologist I was talking about, makes actually between observant participation and participant observation. So it's kind of getting at whether, whether you're putting the emphasis on observing or participating, um, because it can be quite difficult as you know, I was I, I was committed to doing as much running as I could alongside people because I thought that was vital to kind of understand what was going on at a sort of embodied level. But it can also mean that you're, um, it's difficult to observe and participate at the same time, basically. I always thought it would be useful to be able to be kind of both running along in the group and also on the bus watching (laughs) at the same time and have those two perspectives. So I kind of did, I was able to move back and forth between them by things like at one point I got injured um I stepped on a sea urchin in Zanzibar on a holiday and uh, I had kind of spines in my foot so I was injured for about three weeks and that meant I sat on the bus and I talked to the coach and I saw things from his perspective and the sub-agent's perspective and the driver of the bus's perspective um and that was really interesting so I think you kind of have to I think you're, you're basically trying to collect different perspectives on on running so I was interested in in what kind of elite athletes thought about it. But I was also interested in what the, you know, the guys who were literally just starting out, going to the forest for the first time, trying to work out what running was all about. I was interested in their views on it. And I was also interested in what the um, landlady of our compound, who didn't do any running herself, um, but who watched these kind of young people spend all their time either running or sleeping. Um, I was interested to know what she made of that because that's that's an, just as interesting a perspective on it in many ways. So mm. it's kind of trying to piece together the whole um, the whole picture of it, I suppose. Yeah, see it in in three dimensions from as many different angles as possible. And when you are engaging with these individuals, like coming from yourself, is there an element of you having to switch off maybe like biases or, or perspectives that you have so that you can truly absorb everything as neutral neutrally as possible is there, is there an element of that where you're consciously having to engage that that part of yourself to ignore preconceptions um yeah because i think that, well a lot of people who've studied sport um as anthropologists have adopted what they refer to as kind of an apprentice position so they so um there's a quite well-known book about um learning capoeira by an Australian anthropologist who went in knowing nothing about it at all. So he's like, he basically um, is able to write about it because people will explain it to him in really simple terms. And then he would gradually learn how to do it and be able to write about it. Whereas for me, I was obviously, I've been running for sort of uh, 15 years probably before I went to um, Ethiopia. So I had this very ingrained sense of what running was uh, to me from a kind of particular culture of running that I come from, which is 
the northeast of England and sort of the culture of looking back to the 80s and what the runners were, were like back then and my coach was of that era um, and I have a particular kind of old school kind of running vibe I guess that I got from, from that but what I found was because the running in Ethiopia was so different to what to anything that I'd experienced before in terms of the um, the kind of forest terrain and the way that people thought about certain kind of running practices actually I was in this position of being an apprentice and being told be, having things explained to me and um, and being kind of taken under people's wing and drawn into the training group in that way so so yeah I think hopefully that bias didn't affect the project too much um, but I think it was it was there to some extent yeah, it's, it is interesting. And you talk about being involved in the training group and you even say later on that you're actively running with the faster runners, which was kind of almost overtraining you so that you could have that access to to, to their world. And, and with the book as well, the title of it is Out of Thin Air. And it, it seems to me that there's a, is, is there a dual meaning to the title? Because I think it's Out of Thin Air is obviously the altitude and, and the thinner air that they have in Ethiopia. But there's also this like really interesting idea you talk about in the book called, is it a deal or chance that they refer to in the book? And it, it, is there an element of the pedigree of Ethiopian running that some of it is down to this idea of a deal or, or, or chance that you talk about in the book? Yeah, well, I kind of, the, the dual meaning of the title is kind of that, um, that running success is kind of produced as a result of of the thin air and all oh, that's the preconception that it's because of altitude that people get so good at running but also I wanted to to sort of challenge this idea that um, really good runners from Ethiopia and Kenya just appear as if from nowhere you know as if they as if out of thin air um, because we don't know anything about their histories or or what they think you know um, we don't know that much about the specific kinds of expertise that Ethiopian and Kenyan runners have but yeah, the belief in um, so Idil is like a specific way of thinking about um, a chance that I kind of uncovered for um, in some of the Amhara runners that I knew. Yeah, and it was to do with having quite an open-ended idea about what your possibilities in life might be. So it involved sort of entertaining the possibility that you might suddenly just be sort of elected by God to be sort of a transcendent athlete of some kind so you're always so people didn't really believe in talent at all or kind of genetic ability or anything like that they they believed that if, if you kind of lived your life with a particular disposition um and did the right things allowed yourself time to adapt um ran in the right places had the right kind of training group around you that anyone could by doing those things succeed eventually, which I think is quite a helpful. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily true. Like I do think there probably is a genetic component to this to some degree. And like, it seems quite obvious from having been a runner for, for this long, that there is a certain, that talent plays into this in some, in some sense, but I think it's probably helpful as a belief to, to think that you might suddenly have a breakthrough of that kind, because it means that you've got, far more athletes who are willing to keep going and keep training um, and, and put in the kind of 100 miles a week that, that they need to, to do for several years. And then you've got a wider pool of people um, from, from which someone might emerge who's going to be the next kind of Heidi Gebrselassie or someone like that. It does feel when, because you're incredibly lucky, you actually get to, to race in the Ethiopian cross-country championships as well. And there does seem to be reading that passage that there is an element of them 
knowing that their ideal, their chance isn't quite there because people are dropping out left, right and centre, aren't they? As, as the race progresses and, and, and as you catch, catch up to them as well. Like, do you, do you think there's an element of, of them just being able to accept that that time isn't their time and that they're just not willing to, to race? Yeah, I think people are also running for a very specific reason in that race. It's kind of, it's always the trial for the World Cross Country or the African Championships. So they're running to finish in the top eight or the top six to get selected for a particular thing. So they're kind of, um, once they realize they're outside of that, then um, then they do tend to drop out. But the I think the crucial thing is that you've got, you you know, you have 200 people on the start line and it does really seem like all 200 of them think that they can finish in the top eight. So that means that the race just goes off so fast. Mm. Um, and that I don't think that's true of like the, if you go to the English National Cross Country, everyone's probably got a pretty, pretty strong opinion of where they're going to finish. Um, and probably not many of them think they're going to be in the top eight, I suppose. So it's like, it's kind of a slightly different way of approaching racing. I do. It's, it's really inspiring. Like that sort of ultimate self-belief that, yeah, I can finish in the top eight. Yeah. Let, let's go for it. Cause I love that line. You described them when they set off as a wave surging to break on the shoreline, like that sort of sensation of speed of all of these 200 runners, all of which think that they can finish, finish in the top eight. There's something quite, quite inspiring. I think about that. You also touch in the book as well about the athlete's relationship to to technology or more specifically sort of GPS. And I'll, I'll come on to their relationship to it, but I'd love to ask you as, as an anthropologist, the relationship that we have as runners or just more widely as society to to data you know i've got a smartwatch on my wrist now and and tracking and quantifying you know progress or improvement like that must be a fascinating relationship for for someone such as yourself yeah absolutely i'm actually i'm totally fascinated by this at the moment i think it's going to be potentially the next project that i do um if i can get funding to do it so i'm interested in lots of different things i suppose strava for one um the way that that kind of changes people's relationship to their running and changes the way that they think about it um but also creates relationships in some sense because you you're always thinking about segments and those are created by other people and you're kind of interacting with people but not at the same time um but i'm also interested in things like whoop um the bands that sort of tells you how tired you are without you know i think there is interesting these things because they often sort of claim to have privileged information about you that you don't have yourself but that there's this so they one of the one of these things has the the tagline know yourself or kind of you, you don't or they're always telling you that you don't know yourself well enough and that they're going to mm. by, by wearing a particular band it's going to tell you something about yourself that you don't know i think most ethiopian runners would push back against that idea they, you know they would say i've been running for 10 years i know my body inside out there's no way that someone's going to come and tell me that they understand it better than i do i guess um, and do you think it is detrimental in the long run potentially this sort of not obsession but like a slight dependence on that data do you think for for athletes or for just humans in general yeah i think it can be limiting i've never i've never got sort of vo2 max testing or anything like that done personally because i feel like um being told where your limits are um, or, or being measured in that way is potentially quite just lim it's quite limiting, I guess. In this and do you think that's why the Ethiopian runners maybe dial into this idea of a deal of chance then that they kind of don't enter into that process of considering themselves as, as limited? Yeah, I mean, I suppose they don't have access to the testing either. So it's um, 
it's sort of not an option for them. But they, I, I've, I've never met anyone who trains, you know, with a heart rate monitor in particular zones and thought about things in that way. Um, it was a much more sort of intuitive sense of making sure that they were looking after themselves and getting enough rest and and things like that. But I think there's like a, I, th- I do think there's a certain expertise that goes into understanding your own body, and that that was that seemed very clear that um, that they saw kind of slowness as a skill that had to be learned as well as speed. So that you had to learn how to run in the forest in a way that was um, kind of rejuvenative and allowed them to to recover from the harder training sessions. Because they actively run in terrain that's it sounds from the the description in in the book that it's almost impassable, right? Like it's com- yeah. so densely packed that you're you have to stop, like you have to slow down to to maneuver, and that's a that's a conscious choice, right? For them to make sure that there's no temptation to to push the pace. Yeah. So they would run. I mean, it would quite often resemble kind of trail running um, or even kind of hiking, I suppose. Like sometimes we would have to climb up with our hands um, with tree roots up particular banks because they were so steep, you know, and it's that's just not what you imagine when you think of an elite marathon runner training. But someone who's going to be competing on the roads, I think most people don't realize how much of the, the running that they do actually just resembles kind of quite quite hardcore trail running on most days and that is a deliberate thing to make sure that I think there's a sense that if you run always on kind of open ground that's quite easy to run on then the temptation to run too fast would take over and that that's not actually what you want you want to be able to on the easy days run really slowly in order to make sure that on the fast days you're you're ready to really go for it and they have a special relationship to to the forests there in particular there's this beautiful phrase of corridors of breath you're talking about the the eucalyptus trees can you can you unpack that a little bit for for us because i think that's a it's a beautiful sentiment that they that you talk about in the book I think that's that's probably a phrase from Tim Ingold, who's an anthropologist who works on kind of I think he calls it lines and threads that like every path through through a place is both creating a line on the ground, but also a thread through the air because you're using you have but through breathing, that's what's facilitating you moving through the landscape. I think what I found fascinating about the forest was that there's just these endless in sort of crisscrossing pathways throughout the eucalyptus trees. And that demonstrates that people are just constantly trying to find new ways of running through the forest. It's not just that I think I feel like if you go to a forest here, there's just there's one path or a trail that goes through the middle of it. And that's what everyone everyone follows that. Um, So it's a very different kind of way of moving through space. Tim Ingold again refers to this as wayfaring as opposed to transport. So transport is is how he describes sort of straightforward movement between point A and point B. Um, which is just goal orientated. You get there as fast as you can, and wayfaring, which is a far more, which is a way of moving through the landscape that involves far more kind of knowledge creation and trying to build up knowledge of the place in your muscles and in in yourself as you move through the space. More contemplative kind of way of engaging with the place, basically. Because you had to resist the urge, didn't you, to to go on the more well-defined trails? Yeah. You talk about it in the book where you sort of see like a more wider, sort of better, sort of packed down bit of dirt. But you, you, you really sort of fight that urge, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that was like, so on the days that I woke up um, after 6am and therefore everyone else had gone running already, I would go to the forest on my own and go for a run. And it was just interesting that I would tend to just fall back into the old habits of of finding a path and just following it. Um, and I had to sort of consciously remind myself to try to try to run in that in this sort of Ethiopian way that I'd learned. And is that part of your process then as an anthropologist where where customs or practices that you're observing 
that you try to embody them and, and, and do them yourself in order to get a deeper understanding. Yeah, exactly. That's basically the, the, the main thing. So I try to eat similar foods, sleep similar times, do kind of try to follow the same sort of rhythms of training and recuperation and everything else that, that people were following. Um, joining with things, people would spend a lot of time just sort of cleaning running shoes and cleaning running kit by hand and then hanging it up and chatting while we do that. That would take up two hours of, of, of the morning quite frequently. And obviously that's not something I would do when I'm here, but when I, when I was there, that seemed important to, because it was to, it's often to do with like the way that you present yourself as an athlete, that it was important to them to turn up to training with clean shoes and, and kind of look the part as well. So being involved in, in processes like that as well as part of it, not just, um, not just in terms of the running. And in terms of as, as this period progresses then, as you, because your total time there was, how many years were you there for in total? Uh, I was there for 15 months. Um, 15 months. And then I've been back. Uh, probably five or six short trips since then. As that process evolved over the 15 months, because there's a really lovely moment where there's a really tough training run and is it Fasil takes takes your hand afterwards and it's it's quite common for men over in Ethiopia to hold one another's hands and there's a real sense of a, a real relationship and a kinship starting to form between you and the other runners. And, I, and what I'm really fascinated about is in those moments when you're having you know a genuine sort of human connection with someone is there a sense of not guilt but sort of do you feel a bit oh because you're like oh this is such a really lovely moment but I've got to go back and write it down in my notebook as well is there <laughs> is there a bit of a conflict in those moments um yeah I guess there is it does it, you try to not make it feel like that kind of extractive relationship and I don't think it I hope it, it wasn't that it didn't feel like that for him like I feel like we do have a, a pretty strong friendship I still keep in touch with a lot of the guys in Ethiopia and I um I'd had a project that was funded by um the Handa Foundation which was to kind of retrain people or, or help runners to to build up sort of transferable skills so um Fasil while I was there learned to become a barber um in his spare time that was something that I kind of facilitated for him so hopefully there was there was something he was getting something from me as well mm. through that relationship i guess um, that's great so what are the what are the skills did they did they pick up then what are the things were, um, were, were, were exchanged so most most people trained as massage therapists that's kind of the main thing that i wanted to well i, I basically asked people what they what they wanted to do and it was mainly runners who'd been injured in some way but it's it, because the kind of social life of running seemed so important to people and the, the connections that they'd built up it seems such a shame for people to then, I think it's also quite difficult for people to then move back to the farm, you know, in a rural area, having tried to become a runner for five years, um, to kind of accept defeat and failure is quite difficult and um, obviously for people's pride. So I wanted it to be something that they could do that allowed them to keep the connection with running and make a living through kind of using the networks that they had through running. So most people studied massage therapy. Fassel had left school at sort of 11 years old or something like that, and he didn't have the educational background to take the massage course uh, so the the thing for him was becoming a barber um, so and barber shops are always full of runners in in the part of in Kotebe where I lived the, um, people seem to get haircuts like every couple of weeks to keep make sure they were um, streamlined and stuff so <laughs> marginal gains <laughs> love it. Going, yeah. within 
within the runners, like some of the the the, the training that you're involved in, and, and you talk about this idea of cultivating a, a sense of dangerousness within the runners, because some of the things that you do with them, some of the training, like it's interesting, you were talking earlier about your background as a runner and some of the the beliefs that you had about about training and preconceptions, because some of the things that you took part in with the runners were were pretty extreme there was there was one particular early start in the book at about 2:30 where you did something that was which was pretty out of you know uncommon within regular training practices so i think a lot of that is to do with sort of recognizing that you do need to make running as interesting as possible if you're going to keep doing it for 5 years twice a day 10 years sort of thing um and that it should be a creative process that involves kind of thinking through what what you want to do and deliberately consciously trying to make it more interesting so people would kind of plan these training runs for two or three days at a time and make them into something that seemed a little bit more like an adventure than just another session um, and that seemed important for for making the session sort of particularly kind of powerful as a way of getting fitter so examples of that would be the yeah the going and running up and down a hill at three o'clock in the morning um type of thing which seems if you think about the kind of marginal gains theory of um, sporting excellence, you would just that, that's something you would never think of doing because you're losing sleep, you're um, it's potentially dangerous, you might get you're probably going to get injured, and marginal gains is all about avoiding those things. So um, yeah, it's a different logic of of training, which is about kind of embracing the risk, I think, a little bit because um, because so few of the athletes are actually going to make it to the to the big time there is this real sense of kind of precarity about that and i think you by consciously embracing it by em embracing those kinds of risks then you kind of bring it to the surface and they're able to kind of confront it a little bit by um by engaging in those kinds of runs um yeah we got a bit two o'clock and ran all around the city it's quite an experience really and dudging hyenas as well and making yeah. sure of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. i love that idea though of, of them the, 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 that, the, those group of runners thinking about training as as it's going back to that wayfaring idea this sense of discovery or almost creating a narrative around it rather than a binary thing of we're doing this on this day that on that day which i'm sure that there was great structure and logic within it but that way of framing training that it almost becomes yeah like a kind of a dramatic kind of sort of saga for them that kind of highlights what you're talking about the stakes that are involved i think that's a really really interesting thing and there were and there are moments in the book that are incredibly dramatic because you encounter in one particular training session there's a moment where you witness what you would describe as as witchcraft is that right yeah so there's a couple of times that happened um so one of the interesting things that I found was that people were more concerned about witchcraft than they were about doping as it, when they were thinking about kind of illicit practices that surrounded a sport. And there's a particular kind of witchcraft, which involves essentially going to a witch doctor and um, asking them to help you to acquire energy from other people. Um, Is that so Matat, quite, right? Called that, Matat, yeah. yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's, and that people worried about that because they, you know, you hear stories about somebody having a big international breakthrough and, and people would say, oh, they're running with the energy of five or six people. They're obviously doing witchcraft on, on these people. And therefore when, when people felt um, 
felt bad in their training or would have just you know tired for no reason or they were their form wasn't very good sometimes they would explain that through thinking that somebody had had cursed them in some way um it's hard it's hard to know exactly what's going on there really but it's very real when you witness it when you see someone sort of claps and start sort of um wailing and speaking in tongues and things and it's uh yeah it's pretty intense but it shows that there's a lot more going on sort of behind the scenes of um of, of running in Ethiopia that you just wouldn't that just doesn't come into the equation when you think about running in other parts of the world sometimes because Meserat the he he's he's preferred prepared like he got a a bottle of water and a bible like on the bus re- yeah. ready to go so it, it was quite a a regular occurrence then incidents like that uh it happened twice in 15 months to my knowledge so um but, but more often you would hear people going who were suffering. Um, the people who were injured would often go to holy water for a couple of weeks, as opposed to going to the physio, for example, because they would see that as a be- as a better way of kind of being healed and and coming back to to form. So people had different understandings of of how to approach these things. I think there's one brilliant moment in the book where there's there's a bit of a falling out with with the guys there's a there's a training run where uh someone breaks the allocated pace and it leads to a little bit of friction between the guys but there's one unifying thing that kind of brings them together and that's sort of a wider sort of anthropological question to you as to why what that solution that brings them together why do you think that is the thing that brings a lot of individuals together could you sort of tell us that little little story how do you mean what that brings oh so it was the food, right? The the bananas yeah, yeah, on the yeah, bus yeah. afterwards that kind of, there's this sort of tense exchange on, on the bus and then uh, a, a large proportion of bananas are brought out and then there's all these yeah. incredible speeches. Like, I want to come back to one of those speeches later, but um, just fascinated by this idea of what, why it is that it's the, the food that sort of heals all, all, you know, heals all wounds. Yeah, so I think, so the the argument is basically about um, as you said, someone going too fast beyond the given pace of the training session. So there was it's a run where people are supposed to run the first 5k at a particular pace and then the next 5k at a particular pace. And it's, it should be kept very close, you know, one, one or two seconds either side of that per kilometer. And somebody had been seen to be pushing too hard. And that's seen as detrimental to everyone else's energy, basically, and ability to recover. And so the person who gets frustrated has a race in a couple of weeks and doesn't want to be pushed in this way in training and it's i think the reason that that the food comes into it is because eating together is this kind of really important um eating and running together i suppose a very important in ethiopian culture as a way of sort of indexing sociality and social relations with people and, and showing that you care about them and that you're willing to share um so yeah, food becomes food is the answer to to these things where you can you can show that kind of um, sharing, but it's also about um, I, I think there's an element to to which it's like replacing the energy that you've you've seen to have um, you've been seen to have taken from somebody by pushing beyond that pace. So the, this is kind of what I've written. I've, I've tried to write about this in more kind of academic work, but it seems like this this kind of holistic idea about energy and the give and take of energy that involves that goes between kind of food pacemaking responsibilities and then ideas about kind of witchcraft and other things 
that you kind of have to have to understand there's kind of a give and take. So um, that's why the food, that's I think why the food comes into it. So there's a, there's an idea there that they need to offer up the food to everyone else in order to sort of pay them back for the energy that they they've taken from them on the training room by running too quickly. Yeah. I think that's kind of this, the symbolism of it, at least. With this idea of maybe going too fast within these runs, there's this thing of, of condition that's, mm. that's referred to in the book or, or chasing condition where it's this sort of a sweet spot between like perfect peak kind of athletic potential and, and complete burnout that they seem to sort of oscillate between. And uh, I imagine you must have experienced that that as well, training with them. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's um, that's probably elite athletics everywhere. I don't think that's specific to Ethiopians, this idea that you're kind of, um, when you're at your fittest, you're constantly on this knife edge between being as fit as you've ever been and injured or ill. Um, I remember my coach saying that to me as well before I before I'd even sort of thought about going to Ethiopia, I guess, in the context of of kind of marathon training and um and things. So but they yeah, they seemed especially kind of tuned into it, I suppose, as a problem. And with those individuals, you 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 quote the the David Foster Wallace essay about how Tracy Austin broke my heart about athletes being um profundity in motion. And mm -hmm. obviously their athletic, you know, prowess, the incredible times that are recorded in, in the book by some of the individuals. Were there other qualities that you look back on or you still do because you still are in touch with these individuals that that inspire you in the same way as well as their kind of athletic prowess qualities that you took from them yeah i think just um so i, I write specifically about jamal yimmer i think in that bit where he's the ethiopian record holder for the half marathon um he ran 58 33 and i'm kind of interested in that david foster wallace essay and um this idea that i think he says when when you've got like a an athlete at the peak of their abilities and they're able to somehow just sink a um a three-pointer you know as if the world is not all watching them mm. um and he says you know he's kind of thinking about it and he's saying what if what is going through their head is actually just nothing <laughs> at all um and that there isn't really and you know and that's the profundity of it that it's just like um and so I was wondering with Jamal, you know, he's he can run a half marathon seven and a half minutes faster than me or something like that. Um, but it, maybe it just feels the same as me running a 66 minute half. Or I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to, to know what it actually feels like to run that quick. Um, it's interesting. I never will. <laughs> well, I mean, still 66, still pretty impressive. But I love that that bit with Jamal where you go to visit him in his his new place that he's sort of acquired and you're kind of sort of a bit surprised by what he's doing isn't actually all that surprising and it's yeah like going back to that the david foster wallace thing of actually it's it's not all that miraculous and how you know the great sporting individuals when they say those kind of awful cliches after sport that for them it's actually just a true thing like the the idea of cliche it doesn't even enter into them it's those maxims of i gave it everything is completely true like there's no sort yeah. of there's no sort of gray area um and i mean you massively massively improve and you end up the book sort of ends with your journey to to the frankfurt marathon where you do an incredible 220 time like was there a was there a bit of pressure going into that it's like wanting to put all that you kind of absorbed and 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 you know soaked up in your time there to to kind of 
improve within yourself as as a marathoner yeah i did i mean i always um i think there's always this sense with me i think that i'm i'm sort of slightly concerned that the marathon the opportunities around a marathon might be the last one that i get to really like put that that amount of training in without the kind of distractions i suppose <laughs> of the rest of life so i wanted to make sure it um it went well but also uh said was running that day one of the guys from um from uh from the book so i really wanted to to make it work but i think the the nice thing about frankfurt was that um whilst it, when i so when i was training in ethiopia i was always with the men's group um but always just basically off the back really struggling to keep up with the men's group or off the back in the kind of um somewhere between the men's and the women's groups sort of in no man's land often um and someone would usually run with me in that in that space but it felt a little bit like like i wasn't always able to understand the kind of that kind of group dynamic because i just wasn't quite good enough and what happened in frankfurt was that they there was some really world-class ethiopian women there and i ran basically that every step of that marathon with with the elite women which was just like just amazing to be in that group of um, it's not often that you get to watch kind of elite top, top, top level sport from like the equivalent of on the court or on the pitch, you know, to be right in the middle of it. It was quite nerve wracking though, because you, I'm about a foot taller than the, the average Ethiopian female marathon runner. And they would, so when we got to the drink stations, I was always terrified I was going to, you know, knock someone over or get in someone's way. So I would kind of drop back behind the group for that. Um, or people would let me know they'd give me an elbow or something like that if I was in the way but that was that experience was great just like for getting a sense of what it's like to run run a marathon in the lead group um I suppose to and to witness that profundity in, in motion to see yeah. the elite females and, and run with them alongside them behind them or you know, dodging dodging the elbows because yeah, and then you you turn out an, an incredible time and that's that is your pb is from from that frankfurt marathon is that right yeah 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 and it was, I mean, I saw the, I can't remember who won the race, but she, the, when she made the move, it was just, it was kind of amazing. You can't, you can't show that on a TV screen, what, you know, when somebody makes a move in a marathon, because you can't, the relative speeds just don't translate really on a TV screen, I don't think. So um, it was quite amazing when, to, to watch her run away from everyone. Um, it's interesting hearing you talk and there's a real respect and appreciation for for athletes and there's something else that you talk about in the book about when we talk about the the sub two challenges like the breaking two and the Ineos 159 and stuff like that and the the narrative of those events somewhat taking taking the focus away from that profundity emotion that that excellence and do you, do you think there is a bit of a, a of a risk with that, with these kind of the, the new shoes and the carbon plated, this, that, and the other, that people perhaps lose sight of the real excellence of these individuals? Um, I think I think it's sometimes a shame the way that the especially the Breaking Two project was portrayed as mainly a, a challenge of um, the kind of technical experts and the shoe designers and the sort of um biomechanics experts at nike and and not really so much about kipchoge himself so i feel like that took it that i feel like the expert it should be recognized that the expertise largely resides with kipchoge in that <laughs> situation but i can't, i think i sort of changed my mind a little bit when i watched the um the run where he ran 159.40 because it really did 
it, it just really was incredible to watch that. I know it was kind of a stunt and um, and things, but it it really sort of resonated with a lot of people who weren't particularly serious runners as well. I think. Yeah, I, I suppose it's finding that balance, isn't it, of respecting the the pedigree and the the sheer unrivaled talent of the individuals involved, but also the great benefit to be had in events like that to bring something like that to the front of the paper rather than it being tucked tucked away at the back and drawing more people more people into the sport your wife's an anthropologist as well that's right and she in the yeah. book she did a study of um how children with uh, autism and their interactions with with ho- horses and whether that can help them to to speak how, how, how what's that dynamic like to two anthropologists um sharing a sharing a house together um well it's great i mean we were able to to speak on a pretty regular basis while we were both doing field work and kind of bounce ideas off each other and kind of talk through um through what was happening so i feel like the projects have kind of really evolved alongside each other and there are some similar sort of um themes that emerge in terms of thinking about kind of rhythm uh, and the importance of, of rhythmic movement and things like that to both ethiopian running and the process of kind of um equine therapy as well so i think it was it, it was really just it was great being able to both do that work at the same time and that rhythm you come i'd be interested to see what the rhythm aspect was to to your wife's work because in the book the rhythm it's you, you're constantly being told to find feet or find your kind of running partner's feet and that finding that rhythm and you actively having to change your own um, running kind of gait and cycle was something that you consciously worked on through through the your time there as well. Yeah, I think that was that was actually one of the most difficult things for me to to tune into that because I think a lot of the um, a lot of the athletes had been doing that since they were sort of twelve or thirteen years old and and honing it through doing drills together and and, and things. But it meant that when you watch people watch them do a training session on a um, on kind of as- flat asphalt road they'll often be completely in time with each other and that's to do with kind of this idea these ideas about kind of sharing energy and um kind of the efficiency of the group and things that that in, that kind of intunement is important in the way that we might think of it as being important for kind of cyclists doing a team time trial or something like that but they they definitely thought about it in that way and that's i think kind of fascinating in terms of thinking about how success is kind of collectively produced in ethiopia as opposed to something that is inherent in an individual because i think here we would just never think to do that we just running is seen as something that's quite an individualistic sort of sport so and um, with that collective sort of mentality that you witnessed in in ethiopia with that that sharing of energy again that thing of replacing energy with the meal after after the events of the training run and stuff like that that there does come a point now where they do compete you know and there will be a first place, a second place, and a third place. And was that as a as a witness to that? Because you do, you know, witness them go through races. Was that was that difficult for them to have to to break out of that mentality, or was there also an acceptance of ultimately, come race day, there will have to be a a podium? Um, yeah, it's tricky because often managers will not send their athletes to the same race for this reason. Um, so. Th- try to avoid that as a scenario really um but it does it does sometimes happen but pe- people will accept that the race the race is a race and that's that they might be able to help each other in the race in some way but that sooner or later 
it's going to decide who's who's the stronger athlete i think with the the bigger problem though is the fact that within these kinds of um <clears throat> sorry within the management groups there's this very strong narrative of improving together and kind of collective responsibility towards the group and being a team and and, and things like that but at the end of the day you've also got to compete in training as well because how that's how the sub agent or the manager decides who is in a position to go to a race so there is this kind of underlying sense of of competition which is why the coach is constantly trying to control things by setting the times that people are running in training and trying to make sure that um that people aren't competing too much and therefore kind of wasting their energy in that way so his role is quite key in that sense but what we what we did find was that on mondays and fridays um he would set the times that he wanted people to run the paces really carefully but then on a wednesday morning we'd usually do a speed session where it was kind of a free for all um and he allowed people to kind of allow that kind of competitive uh sort of spirit out and kind of it's almost like a safety valve in some way i think um so it's like an awareness that that you need that kind of competitive you need to hone those competitive skills as well but within a controlled environment and only some of the time. And it is interesting, you do, yeah, the, those those speed sessions in the book, and I think that's a real credit to the coaches, that mastery of of modulating those levels and knowing within the group of athletes that you're working with that I love this idea of, yeah, sort of bleeding a radiator, just letting off that little bit of pressure and allowing them to to have this this competitive um, this competitive session. There's a moment in the book where you talk about um, Kanonisa's records for the 5,000 and 10,000 meters. And you say in the book that you don't think they'll ever be beaten. Yeah. And it's just interesting because obviously running is, it just seems at the moment that it's evolving. Like so many records are falling. And now obviously guy from Uganda has obviously taken that those records of the crown or whatever you want to call it. Where do you think from from an anthropological sort of perspective, if, if that's even a, a possible question, where do you think it's going to go, the sport? How do you think it's going to evolve? That's a good question. I think I, do, I think Cheptegei is probably a really, you know, incredibly, incredibly talented athlete. Um, so I don't know how much of what he's done has been to do with the shoe, new shoe technology and how much of it is just him. I do think just broadly, the introduction of all the new shoes is a shame from the point of view of being able to compare historically between athletes because it because we've usually used time as a way of doing that. I think we need a new kind of metric for kind of comparison across um, historical eras. Um, so I don't know what that is, but I, I think this kind of goes back as well to the, your question about sort of the 159 project and things like that and this kind of emphasis on fast times above all else which seems to be the the kind of the way that the sport is going at the moment and I wonder whether it's whether we need to just get back to this to trying to put together races and scenarios in races where it's just going to be a, you know a race and the tactics actually come into it rather than always having marathons you know paced at you know the maximum that people can that you think that people can run mm. um that can be interesting but it can also be really boring i think sometimes so but i know that the, the financial incentives are so, so much to do with running fast times from the brands uh, in terms of bonuses that are written, written into contracts and things like that but it is quite difficult to change that kind of mentality of wanting to because there's a, a moment in the frankfurt marathon where you're talking about i, I forget his name now that one of the athletes has a, a contract with the main the main uh, shoe suppliers shall we say and there's a real 
pressure between him and his coach about the time he's going to run because he needs to have shown some improvement, but he doesn't want to completely blow up because he doesn't want that contract to be to be taken away from him. And that's a, a whole other idea of pressure that the athletes are under. Yeah, definitely. I think there's the um because it because it's so competitive, because there are so many athletes capable of running in the sort of two five, two six, two seven sort of um ballpark now it is almost like you have to be able to prove that you can go faster more or less every race in order to to maintain the contracts because the contracts are usually only for a year and then you've got all the kind of problems with um at the moment with covid the fact that they always have clauses written in about if you don't race for a certain number of months then it'll be cut by 50 percent or 75 percent and things like that so matt hart's book win at all costs um really goes into this in a lot of detail about um specifically about kind of the contracts that women have and, and what happens when they want to have kids and things like that. And I think we need to probably rethink a lot of that stuff, how those contracts are put together, probably. Mm, definitely. Just for the longevity of the sport and for the the health and the safety of the individuals who are already sacrificing themselves and putting their bodies through you know all manner of of extremes like the the some of the things that these these guys do in the in the book are are insane and is there a chance perhaps that you'll go back and reconnect with the ethiopians post covid and kind of not a sequel to the book i'm not being your publisher but like do you think there'd be there'd be merit within your anthropological studies to kind of revisit and sort of see where they are now you know see how the guys who become uh, masseuses are getting on and, and and stuff like that yeah definitely i mean that's something that most anthropologists would do like a big chunk of field work when they're doing their phd and then they'll sort of revisit every sort of six months or a year or something like that for sometimes people have done that for sort of 20 years and then they're able to write amazing stuff about kind of that also builds in a really historical kind of narrative about what's happened so i'd hope to be able to yeah go back pretty frequently people have ended up in all kinds of different situations so um Vassil actually is now in germany um some of the athletes have um a couple of the athletes that i knew quite well have, have since sort of stopped running and moved back to the um, to places where they grew up. And then you've obviously got people like Jamal, who is making a huge amount of money and is really successful. So it would be really interesting to see how all that has, has kind of played out. Definitely. I just want to just talk a little bit about, there's a moment, I keep going back to this event where there's this there's this falling out. Um, I've got the book here, got it ready, page one, 182, um, where there's this falling out and afterwards the the food is shared and sort of you know the the wounds are healed and everyone's starting to get up and there's a moment where everyone gets up and does some speeches afterwards mm. and then there's an athlete makasha is that correct makasha yeah. has most profound insight and he's one of the younger athletes within the group where he comes out with this line and it says that the human mind is like a farm it will grow whatever you cultivate so you have to distinguish between the wheat and the chaff and focus on the good it's such a profound insight from from a young athlete and for you are there specific things as profound as as what makasha comes out with that you think you'll always keep with you as a runner and as just as a human I don't think I could put it any better than Makasha does there. He was the he's an incredibly articulate guy and grew up. He lived in a um, in a church for quite a long time, so he was kind of an um, uh, sort of an apprentice in the church and reading lots of religious texts and things like that. But he would he would come out with these kinds of things a lot. Um, and I suppose it's in, in that he's he's getting at this idea that you need to 
give adequate sort of time and energy and attention to the things that you really value, I suppose. And that's that does seem to be what people, what the, the runners that I knew do. And it seems to be quite a good way of living your life. I do think you need to have a have something that you're sort of passionate about that's not your job. And I think that's really important sort of in terms of just mental health and, and everything else. So I think that's, it's a bit, I couldn't, I couldn't put it better than Makashi does. I think that's that's a lovely sentiment to to end our conversation with Michael. Honestly, I I can't recommend your book enough and thank you so much for for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Michael's book Out of Thin Air is available now. You've been listening to Saw Long Form with me your host Danny Easton and you can find more about Saw at our website sawrunning.com. Next time, if I think there's a good athlete who might be being denied a chance to be an Olympic medalist or a record holder because someone else on that track is cheating. I see that as my job to go after the person who's cheating. If you enjoyed today's episode, then subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts from, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.